Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. The failure of government is a common refrain in American politics these days. Here's another complaint to add to the list: Two Bay Area teenagers have joined a lawsuit against the federal government, claiming it is not fulfilling its legal duty to protect the Earth's atmosphere for future generations. They're asking the government to craft a plan to dramatically reduce emissions of carbon pollution that is driving global weirding. The suit is a long shot and a high-stakes effort to get serious about clean energy based on a well-established body of law known as the public trust doctrine. Courts in California and other states recognize that protecting water is a matter of public trust, but no court has ever applied the concept to the atmosphere. In the next hour, we'll discuss the novel legal concept with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and three experts. Phil Gregory is principal attorney at Kachet, Petrie, and McCarthy and a lead litigator in the atmospheric trust litigation. Pete McCloskey is a former congressman and a co-author of the Endangered Species Act. David Takish is associate professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. Let's please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Phil Gregory, let's begin with you. Uh, who are these youth, and why are they bringing this case against the federal government? This is a defining moment for our youth. Right now, our youth are beginning to understand that if they don't take action, neither our Congress nor, candidly, will our president do anything. As Pete will talk about later, it's up to the youth to get us all motivated. And they have come to understand that our court system is going to provide the best avenue for forcing relief. So Alec Lors started Kids versus Global Warming, and Alec met with Professor Mary Wood up in Eugene, Oregon, Julia Olson and Sharon Duggan, and they started forming the idea of why not bringing the courts into the equation and having the courts at a macro level through the public trust doctrine, force our executive branch to take steps to deal with human-made global warming. And there's some other precedents for this that we'll, we'll get into later with regard to uh, civil rights movement, et cetera. Uh, but David Takish, tell us, briefly define for us, what, what is the public trust doctrine? Sure. So about 1,500 years ago, Emperor Justinian in the Holy Roman Empire said... By the law of nature, some things are common to all mankind. The air, the running water, the sea, and the shores of the sea. And that idea has spread throughout the world over 1,500 years and found its way into legal systems all around the world and in the United States, especially in California. And the public trust doctrine that comes from that idea stands for three main ideas. First of all, there are some elements in the world. There are some resources that are so fundamental to human life that cannot be wasted by private ownership. They cannot be taken and used by private sources and destroyed. So that's the first idea. The second idea is that the government 
has an obligation, a legal obligation, to steward those resources, to make sure that neither that no private uses waste those resources and despoil them for current and future generations. And the third idea is that the public has a fundamental right to defend its trust, to defend the use of these resources, to make sure that those resources are not being destroyed for present and future generations. And this has been applied here. I think it's in the state of California Constitution. There's been cases where it's been well established with regard to water. Right? It has been established with regard to water, but the public trust doctrine has proven particularly flexible, and it has been applied not just to water resources, but to wildlife, to other fundamental public resources, and this lawsuit seeks to extend public trust protections to the atmosphere. Pete McCloskey, uh, you uh, have been involved in this for, for quite, quite some time, and many people in the audience probably don't have personal recollection of the golden era of environmentalism in, in the early 1970s. Uh, could you tell us how youth got that going and what its impact was on the political process? Well, it started uh, with people like uh, the age of the high school and college students. Uh, In 1970, we'd had 25 years of growth after World War II. We'd had the Depression, and then we'd had this incredible development from 1945 to 1970. And every politician ran on the theory, "Let's, let's develop more, let's use more automobiles, cars, everything. And the only people that talked about the environment were people in their youth, 17, 18, 20-year-olds, and they enjoyed the clean air then that that California had had. And so uh, a graduate of San Jose State named Fred Dutton, Senator uh, Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, conceived the idea we ought to have an Earth Day, and it was going to be April 22nd. And April 22nd was the famous Arbor Day, which... A professor in Nebraska in the 1870s with no trees in Nebraska said, let's have every school child plant a tree on April 22nd, seedling. Let's have trees again. Well, so Earth Day came, and we it was in the height of the anti-war years, and so we got the student body president at Stanford, who had just graduated, Dennis Hayes, to be the director of Earth Day, 1970. And he got a staff of young people that were 18, 19, 20 years old, came to Washington, and they wrote a letter to all student body presidents, every high school, every college in the United States, 12,000 schools. Let's have an Earth Day on April 22nd. Would you do it on your school? Berkeley High School student body president writes back, sure, we'll have an Earth Day. And Earth Day was to be a day of study where you had studied air pollution and water pollution, things that were not popular in the Congress's mind or the executive's end. And so every two weeks, a memorandum went out about air pollution or water pollution or oceans or land use, whales. And Earth Day came, and it was celebrated all over the United States, mostly by students, young people, gathering on college campuses, Berkeley, Stanford, San Jose. Earth Day... uh, came and and it went. And two weeks later, there was a little article in the paper in Washington that youth group labels 12 members of Congress the dirty dozen and vows their defeat. Well, I was in the cloakroom that day and this old guy came running in. This is your work, McCloskey. This is your work. He's on the list of the 12 dirty dozen. Cloakroom being the place. Cloakroom in the House of Representatives. The Democrats have one in the corner. The Republicans have one. Any event, everybody started laughing and said, this is just a bunch of kids. What can they do? A few weeks later, the two Democrats on that list were both defeated. Young people from all over the East Coast gathered in Baltimore, and they beat the Denver congressman, the Baltimore congressman, Walter Fallon. Kids from all over the West gathered in Denver, and they took out two Democratic congressmen by less than a 1,000 votes. They hadn't picked the... Twelve worse. They picked twelve people they thought they could beat because there wasn't a turnout, Democratic vote turnout. Well, in November they beat five of the seven Republicans. And when Congress convened in January 71, everybody said, I am now an environmentalist. Here a force had taken out seven incumbents. That hadn't happened in a century. 
So Earth Day was followed by all of the great environmental acts, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species, Marine Mammals. All of that happened with a Democratic Congress, Republican president, about, about four years. So what young people did in 1970, it's entirely proper that young people be the plaintiffs in a lawsuit to try to protect the other atmosphere because you guys that are 17, 18, 19 today are not going to be living as long as we have lived as a result if that upper atmosphere continues to be tainted. So, Phil Gregory, what's your hope? You, you filed this suit You have uh, against the federal government. You have a couple of youth uh, <clears throat> plaintiffs. Uh, Playhouse for us what, what, you, what you're asking the government to do. What, what are the, these youth asking of the government? Sure. And what we're, our, our goal is in this case is that historically there have been, I'm going to call them statute-based lawsuits, where you find a particular problem and you go after that problem. But labeling the polar bear as an endangered species is not going to solve the human-made climate crisis. So what you've got to do is approach it at a macro level. And you've got to say uh, uh, to the courts, you, either in the federal court, we've filed actions in 50 states. We're also filing actions in various countries throughout the world. You need to take charge of the situation. You, need, you the judge, need to declare that there's a problem here and that the government, the sovereign, as David was talking about, is not doing enough to protect the trust, to protect the natural resources. And so you need to require that the various federal departments or in the states, the state agencies, as well as uh, uh, um, other countries, that all these judges need to require that these departments present an appropriate plan so that we're going to bring down the parts per million problem over the uh, next century. And what we want the court to do is not itself institute a regulation or not itself say this is what you must do, this particular act, but rather what we're saying is you, the uh, uh, state agencies, you, the federal departments, need to come forward with a plan that works. And then, so, and then you want the, the government to come back with this plan, the court to say, okay, and, and, but this is all grounded in science. We should say, what's the baseline? The, the foundation here is what some scientists are saying is what needs to be done to stabilize the atmosphere. Yes, um, I have here the book uh, Jim Hansen wrote, Storms of My Grandchildren, and Jim is really behind bringing our youth, our, uh, his grandchildren, and future generations into the equation and saying, who's walking, watching out for them? So Jim has helped us assemble a dream team of experts. But it's not just science, and it's important to emphasize that. We're talking about national security issues. We're talking about... Uh, uh, economic issues. You have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mike Mullen, saying, whatever the root cause, climate change's potential impacts are sobering and far-reaching. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff views this as a major crisis. So we're not just going to present the courts with a dream team of scientists. We're going to bring in insurance individuals associated with the insurance industry, former military personnel, everything to say that this is a national problem. Our youth have recognized it. Our youth realize we're close to the tipping point. And you, the court, need to recognize that as well. Because once a judge realizes how close we are to having a major catastrophe on our hands, he or she will then, we believe, bring the departments in, fr- in front of the court and say, you have to do something now. So you're really appealing to the, the conscience of, of judges and hope that one judge, either in a state or the, at the federal level, will come forward and say, look, this is a moral imperative. And that requires, a, a, David Takish, a bit of a leap of faith because the body of law is not there for this yet. This well, is a new 
application of law to a new area. Well, yes and no. Uh, it does require a certain leap of faith, but it's important to start by saying that if you look at the, comp- the, the legal complaints that the kids are putting forward, they are well legally grounded. That is to say, it is not a frivolous lawsuit. It's not asking a judge to make a moral leap of faith that is not actually grounded in the law. So that's to start with saying that there's firm legal grounding for this, given what I understand about the public trust doctrine and what the lawyers have laid out. That doesn't necessarily mean that the judges will actually do that. That is to say, to take that leap to, for example, say that this resource, the atmosphere, which has not hitherto been seen as a public trust resource, is a public trust resource, and we're going to accept the scientific, the specific scientific prescription that, that, that is laid out in this lawsuit from Jim Hansen and other scientists, and we are going to make the government obey that scientific prescription, that would take a certain leap for a judge to make. It is, it's legally permissible for the judge to do that, but that doesn't mean that a judge will necessarily do that. Do judges, do judges take those kinds of leaps in other areas? Uh, let me give you an example. A great governor of California became chief justice of the United States. We'd had school segregation for hundreds of years. And in Brown versus Board of Education, Chief Justice Warren said, the states and the governments now have to move with what? All due speed. All deliberate speed. To undo segregated schools. And it took years. It's still taking years to accomplish it. But the courts have been in the lead. And judges have as matters of conscience. When politicians didn't have the courage to do something, courts have said, you must do it. And that's the theory of this lawsuit. And hopefully... Uh, there will be courageous judges that take the lead. And, and following on what Pete said, we have a recent example of that in California with the prison system, where a judge recognized that there's a huge problem with the California prison system. And so the judge said, not I'm going to tell you what to do, but the judge said to the officials, you go out, you formulate a plan, you come back and present me with the plan, and when we we determine that the plan has worked, is is proper, we're gonna you're gonna implement that plan and you're gonna do it right away. That went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, and in the last term, the United States Supreme Court said that was the right thing to do. A judge sitting in equity has the ability to fashion the remedies he or she thinks is appropriate for the situation. And as David had pointed out, while there's precedent regarding water, it's clear that the law can cover air, can cover the atmosphere, and that's why this atmospheric trust litigation is an appropriate way for the courts to get involved. Phil Gregory is principal attorney at Katcha Petrie and McCarthy. Our other guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are former Congressman Pete McCloskey and David Takesh, a professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. David, you want to jump in here? I would add two things to that. We have in California an example of the kind of leap that courts have made with respect to the public trust doctrine. So in 1983, National Audubon Society brought a suit against Los Angeles saying that by depleting water supplies that were headed for Mono Lake, they were uh, the city of Los Angeles had been granted those rights by the California state government, and the suit alleged that California, the government of California, was violating their public trust duties in allowing Los Angeles to continue to do that. And the Supreme Court of California said, yes, it was a very aggressive decision. Yes, Los Angeles, you have to stop doing that because California cannot uh, allow you to violate, to, to rob future generations of these of, of this water supply, of this natural resource, which is Mono Lake. That decision also talks about the public trust doctrine protecting the purity of the air, wildlife resources. So, for example, so we have certain kinds of aggressive courts decisions like that. I'd also add that I think that you're hoping that this never goes to court. You're hoping that 50 state governments and the federal government will say, okay, you're right. We don't need to go to court. We can sit down with the plaintiffs and work out a plan to do what the plaintiffs want. And then the court is your is your point of last resort. Is that David's absolutely right? What we would love to do is sit down with the various state attorney generals and and develop 
a plan with them so that the public trust, the natural resources, are protected and have them use the public trust doctrine to call on their departments, to call on the various agencies to develop a plan because we would rather have that plan fashioned in a consent way through a consent decree than have some judge have to sit there and listen to the testimony because we all know when a judge listens to the testimony about the science and about the effects, he or she is going to be outraged that nothing is being done. And so it's better to fashion a consent decree, as David was saying, than to sit down and have something imposed on them. I should say that we invited uh, representatives from the state of California to participate in this program. They declined, and we also invited uh, energy producers, manufacturers, various business groups to be part of this conversation, and, and uh, we hope that they will in the future. They didn't agree to do that today. Uh, but I did talk to some people from the state of California who said, hey, look, we're doing more than any other state. We're the good guys here. Why are we getting sued? This is a distraction. Uh, this is, you're, you're suing the bad guys. Get off our back. Bill Gregory, how do you respond to that? Well, I think the key thing is, is there's no overall plan for the state of California that, that, it, that they are prepared to uh, implement statewide. And that's what we want to see. And further, if, if California... Well, they would say AB 32, Assembly Bill 32, the state has a more comprehensive plan than any other state to right. do more on climate change than any other state. But saying we're doing more than anybody else doesn't necessarily mean they're solving the problem. I mean, a, a, a classic example is uh, I've been reading the Taylor Branch uh, books on the civil rights movement back in the 60s. And what you'd have uh, uh, Birmingham say, well, you know, we're we're throwing this bone to uh, 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 this group over here and we're helping that group out over there. So the federal government, the federal courts, you don't need to intervene because we're moving along. We're kind of taking our time, but we're doing something and we're doing more than this town over here or that state over there. But the point was, it, that there still was an overall problem that a, that a comprehensive plan wasn't addressing. And that's what we want to see from each of the 50 states and from the federal government. The state of California has public trust doctrine in its state constitution. David Takash, what does that mean? Is that... Uh, what does it mean to have that embodied in the, the Constitution of California? That, that, that's, a, that's a question that legal scholars actually debate. So is the public trust doctrine something that, if it's in a statute that says we have a public trust to protect wildlife or to protect this, that, and the other thing, therefore there is no general public trust doctrine. So if you have a new resource like the atmosphere, you don't have a requirement there. So that's actually, it's actually a confusing question that I think even legal scholars don't quite know the answer to. Uh, but you do are right. We do have it in our Constitution with respect to certain resources, and we also have the judicial tradition of applying the public trust doctrine in new ways to this Mono Lake case, to wildlife. There's a 2008 case that says very clearly uh, wildlife, the state's wildlife, are is a public trust resource. So you have um, – so to go back to what he was saying, on one hand, you've got this aggressive public trust doctrine in California, but on the other hand – you have AB 32, which aggressively, according to California state government, is the way that the government is fulfilling its public trust responsibilities. So you'd be asking California for a judge to say, I'm going to second guess the government of California's comprehensive plan and instead go with the specific scientific formula that's laid out in this lawsuit, which is that you're required to cut greenhouse gases 6% per year starting in 2012 or 2013? Uh, 2012. 2012. So it's asking a court to make a, a competing scientific judgment, and courts are, judges are often reluctant to second-guess the expertise of a government that actually is taking specific action. So you think that the chances of this lawsuit are longer in California or better in California? Uh, it is... It can go either way in California. On one hand, aggressive public trust doctrine. On the other hand, the the nation's foremost climate change legislation. So you've got big weights uh, going in both directions. Pete McClossie, you have thoughts here about California? You've seen cases where judges jump in and where law has been made. Well, Uh, (laughs) it's written into our Constitution that the state of California government 
has a public trust of the public's right to fish. And you saw a federal judge uh, down on the San Joaquin water say you're going to have to have enough water in that river so that fish can live in there. Well, I think we've got a good chance because this state, we have more than most states have. We, uh, If you're lucky enough to live in Northern California, only one person out of every 400 in the world lives in Northern California. Well, look what we've got, the national parks, the redwoods, the great rivers, uh, uh, we, we maybe owe more to the country in Northern California than anywhere else because we have more. We're lucky to live here. Even in Berkeley, we, uh, maybe we can get that kind of that tuition down a little at the university. <laughs> Pete McCloskey is a former congressman. We're discussing atmospheric I would trust say that. Sure. Being in government, never trust the government to adhere to the doctrine of public trust. you got to force them. And it's going to be the courts that take the lead, and it's going to be the young people that that force the politicians to act. And on the young people, uh, were young people also uh, uh, involved in the civil rights movement as well? We often think yes. about Earth Day in Vietnam, but there was a youth element in civil rights as well. In fact, okay. there were two key components of youth being involved in the uh, civil rights movement. One is at the schools, the, the, the kids who were in the we'll call them the separate but equal schools, they said, we don't want to take it anymore, and they forced the issue. Uh, uh, and further in Birmingham, uh, it was the youth uh, uh, um, going out with the, the individuals who wanted to register to vote, and the youth being victimized by uh, 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 fire hoses, having police dogs on them and the like, and the spectacle of that uh, really turned our nation's sympathies around and forced the then Kennedy and later Johnson administrations to do something in terms of what became the Civil Rights Act. And uh, that has, has had a profound impact. Are there other examples where youth have had a tremendous impact other than the Earth Day example that you mentioned, Pete McCloskey? We would not have had Earth Day or the environmental movement had not the youth insisted on it back in 1970. And it's going to have to happen again today. As I say, politicians tend to be conservative by nature. They have to be forced to do things like serve the public trust. And if you, you just read the papers every day, you'll see that politicians don't very often do that. But we have had leading politicians in California. We've had uh, Sam Farr and Fred Farr, the leading uh, environmental state legislators, Peter Baer. We've had great leading legislators come forward in this state. We've had great judges come forward with decisions like on the San Joaquin River. I, uh, uh, as I say, I, I think we, we owe more to the country because we're so blessed to live here. But uh, polls would say that if you poll Americans that the economy and their job, particularly right now, is the primary concern that the environment and other things fall down, and they don't. They might agree. They don't vote on environmental issues, and that's why politicians can afford to vote against their constituencies on things like clean air, clean water, etc. I think today the environmental movement is dead in its tracks because the right wing has conceived the idea and sold the country that by strong environmental regulation we are forcing jobs overseas instead of here. And that's the political place to be right now is for jobs. So the courts are the particularly correct place to force this doctrine. As my mother once said about politicians, they'll say anything but their prayers. And that's really true because right now the, our politicians are saying uh, uh, it's all about jobs and for some reason they've been able to convince people that uh, the environment is anti our economy. That's just a whole bunch of bunk. And what really we need to do is figure out how to have a renaissance of changing the way we do things so that we're no longer harming our environment. And when we do that, there will be a lot of new jobs. There will be new technologies. There will be new money flowing through our stream. Business as usual is no longer the way to treat our economy because look what keeps happening. We keep going down the tubes and business as usual right now is not getting our uh, uh, human-made climate crisis solved. Phil Gregory is a principal attorney at Katcha, Petrie, and McCarthy. David Takas, you want to jump in here? Yeah, Eric Pooley calls it the big lie, the fact that environmental regulation 
leads to economic downfall. And he's an author with uh, Bloomberg Business Week. Correct, yeah. correct. And so, so environmentalists will point to the fact that 40% of the venture capital in the United States, and the clean energy is now the leading source of venture capital in the United States. 40% of that is falling into Northern California because of AB 32. So we'll promote green jobs, et cetera. That aside, back to your original question, the point of the one of the main points of the public trust doctrine is it's forward looking. It doesn't say we have a crisis now, therefore we must must destroy the our, the natural our natural resource base for current and future generations. It's forward looking. It wards against generational theft, not only for your generation but for the next generation. It's something that has to. It, it's a legal principle that makes us think about sustainability no matter what the current crisis we find ourselves in. But it sounds like you're asking judges to become social activists. Well, we're really not. What we're asking the judge to do is to recognize that there is a key problem here and that the problem is not getting solved. Let me contrast that with a recent Supreme Court decision that came down about nuisance cases the Supreme Court was faced with various states uh, uh, suing uh, uh, five of the, uh, uh, we'll call them the... the uh, large energy companies. Large carbon dioxide emitters throughout the United States. And the issue was, can these states sue uh, um, these emitters when there's a federal statute, the Clean Air Act, and when... There's an environmental protection agency out there that may, and I want to underline the word may, do something about it. And the Supreme Court said, well, you can't bring a case against these emitters under the nuisance doctrine because you've been displaced. The Clean Air Act at some point perhaps might deal with this. And because it might deal with this and the and the uh, uh, EPA has the authority to deal with this, whether or not they're dealing with it, you can't bring a case. Well, our youth said, our youth plaintiffs said, well, that's, that's crazy. We need action now. What can we get a judge to do now? And that's why the public trust doctrine is different than what the Supreme Court was talking about in the nuisance cases. The public trust doctrine is overlaying what our governments are doing now and saying, are you doing what you should be doing to protect the trust? Because if you're not, then we're going to intervene and get you on track to do that. And what's the time frame? How will this play out? What, what's your scenario for this playing out at both at the federal level and the state level? Sure. And uh, uh, we are putting together, and, and uh, by the end of this month, we'll have our uh, a motion for preliminary injunction where we are going to go into court and say, based on these uh, scientists, based on these uh, experts in other fields, economics, agriculture, uh, psychology, Based on all these areas, there's a huge problem here and nothing is being done but that the federal government could do something if you, judge, required them to do something. And that is going to be the next major step in the federal case. And follow on from that, similar things will occur both in our international cases and in uh, some of our state cases. And this sounds like a David and Goliath story. Not only are you up against big government, but you're up against big oil and big coal and big everything else. We're sure that they're going to want to intervene in our actions and stop us from requiring the federal government to do something. That's why we're glad we have courageous judges out there who are not beholden to these interests and will take the steps necessary to start protecting our youth, future generations, as, as David pointed out, in a way that's appropriate. Pete McCloskey? I can't add anything to that except never trust a politician. You've got to look to the courts today. Coming from one who knows, yeah, who's been, yeah, there. Um, also, it seems that in addition to, the, to you know, so the opposition, are the oil companies, energy companies, uh, Phil Gregory, actively opposing this already? Or are they kind of sitting back and kind of watching? 
They're, they're waiting to see what the response is of the federal government and the various state governments. As, as uh, uh, David pointed out, what we're hoping for is to be able to sit down with these various uh, uh, governmental bodies and design something. And, and when we're in that process, that's when we fear that we'll call it big oil, uh, 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 will try to intervene in the action and, and try to convince the judge that you shouldn't do anything, throwing every legal argument from sovereign immunity and preemption and standing at us, and we're ready. One thing we haven't brought out uh, in this talk, but we have been working with law students throughout the country and helping us research issues there is a, a underground network of law students who are uh, genuinely uh, committed to moving these cases along, to dealing with these, these uh, core issues so that the judge is properly briefed and he or she will have the benefit not only of the, I'm going to call it the, the lawyers funded by uh, uh, big oil, etc., but will have the opportunity for the uh, 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 from briefs from law students that are that excellently resource, researched. Uh, the writing's been wonderful. Uh, many of them could do a much better job than I could in, in advocating this point. David Takish? We're using words like courageous or social activist to describe judges. And I teach first-year law students, and a lot of law students come to law school, and they think the law is like this thing here. It's this firm thing. The law says this, and therefore you must do. The law says X, and therefore you must do X. Whereas, in fact, most of the law is quite flexible, and that's why we have so many lawyers in the world, because you can argue things either way. So the law permits a range of different outcomes in this case. When we refer to a courageous uh, judge, it's someone who's willing to, within this bounds, go all the way over here on this one. Judges tend to be somewhat conservative. I don't mean politically conservative in the way that we think of conservatives, but conservative in that they often don't want to push the bounds of what the law permits. They want to stay somewhere in the center. So that's what we would mean by courageous or activist here, but it's not going beyond what the public trust doctrine would actually allow them to do. The question is, will they actually do that? And in many cases, I would be skeptical that they will actually do that, although we can hope that they will do that. And do you only need one, say, uh, someone in Indi- a judge in Indiana says, yeah, I sort of see this. Then what? where does it go from there? I mean, does it then, is it like gay marriage or marriage equality where it kind of marches from state to state and kind of makes incremental progress and gains acceptance? Yes, absolutely. I think that once, it's, it's again, I'm going to come back to the civil rights movement. I mean, once judges start issuing orders and they say, you can't do this, you can't discriminate in voting, you can't discriminate in schools, you have to take charge of making sure that our natural resources are protected, then I think other judges will follow on with that. So that's why we're hoping that uh, uh, one or more of these judges, by the end of this year, start uh, uh, issuing orders trying to protect our environment for our youth and for generations to come. Another case that often comes to mind of these sorts of things is the tobacco cases, where state's attorney generals did get involved. Of course, in that case, they saw a lot of money being dangled, revenue coming into their states, attorney generals being often politicians, elected office. Uh, This is a little different. I don't think they see revenue streams in this case, but are there any parallels between the tobacco cases and these atmospheric cases? I think that there are there uh, is a fundamental uh, similarity, and that is that in the tobacco cases, it wasn't uh, originally the state attorney generals who wanted, who got involved. There were other lawsuits, but they began to see that the states wanted to be in charge of the situation. I think when the various state attorneys generals see that they're better off negotiating something, something that they're in charge of, that they can then say to the voters, we put in something to protect our youth, to protect future generations, I think then there's going to be a groundswell, there's going to be a consortium of state attorney generals who will want to sit down with us and uh, and style a consent decree that will meet these needs. 
David Takish, and then we'll get Pete in. No, I, I just think your tobacco example is a perfect one because for years everybody smoked. You couldn't see a movie where people weren't smoking on the movies. Yeah, it's hard to remember now. How, it's, how, it's hard air, to remember, but, and, yeah. but cigarettes were the biggest advertising business. Tobacco was the economy of half a dozen states. And yet somebody brought a lawsuit, and some scientist said, wait a minute, this is dangerous to the health. Now the Attorney General, or the uh, what is it? Surgeon the, General Surgeon of the United General. States. Yeah. Smoking is dangerous to your health. So all of these things start with the courts, with a novel concept, a courageous judge, and pretty soon it becomes national understanding and becomes a policy of the country. And I, the CO2 emissions, that, I mean, you just see those icebergs melting in the Antarctic or in the, uh, the disappearing in Mount Kilimanjaro, and you understand that those CO2 emissions are doing something that's harmful to us and going to be a lot more harmful to our grandchildren. Pete McCloskey is a former congressman. David Takas from UC Hastings. You used uh, the uh, tobacco uh, litigation, which brings up another point. Lawsuits, even if they fail, often can help you achieve the goal that you're trying to achieve. We have in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have this suite of lawsuits pursuing a novel legal a novel legal path to try to get a hold of climate change. We have in the audience Brent Newell from the Center for Race, Poverty, and the Environment, and they've represented the Alaskan village of Kivalina that's alleging nuisance against 24 major uh, energy companies and have linked that nuisance claim to a claim for conspiracy that these energy companies have conspired to defraud the public, just like the tobacco companies conspired to defraud the public. And they really get angry, by the way, when that association is made. A, A stone's throw away from here, you have the Center for Biological Diversity that's using the Endangered Species Act to establish that polar bears are endangered, coral is endangered, and the only way to save those species is through curbing global climate change. Across the Bay, you have Earth Justice, which represents the Inuit Circumpolar Conference in a human rights uh, campaign in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, saying that the United States, by not curbing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, violates the Inuits' rights to life, economic development, culture, property, etc. All this by way of saying, even if everything that I just mentioned fails, by constantly doing this, you put both the government on notice that you've got to be doing something to solve this problem because these lawsuits are going to keep coming and that people are concerned. You also put businesses on notice that if they don't reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's by law or voluntarily, they are going to constantly be facing these legal actions. So there are ways of Lawsuits that have legal merit, even if they don't work, doing a lot of political work to get the people that are responsible for the public trust to be fulfilling their public trust responsibilities. David Takish is Associate Professor at the UC Hastings College of the Law. Our other guest today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Pete McCloskey, former congressman and a co-author of the Endangered Species Act, and Phil Gregory, an attorney at Kacha, Petrie, and McCarthy. Uh, we are going to put our audience microphone out here and invite people to come and uh, ask a question or uh, make a brief comment. Uh, it's an opportunity to ask a, uh, Pete McCloskey really is a legend in the environmental movement. It's an opportunity to ask him and the others questions. If you're on this side, we'd encourage you to please go out that door uh, and, and form the line over there and uh, hope that some of the students will, uh, will, will step up and ask a question as well as as well as others, so don't be shy. Sometimes it takes a while for the first one to get going, but uh, yeah, the line will form right over here, so please come on forward. Um, we've been talking a lot about government inaction, et cetera. One area where there is, I think, some significant action uh, is, is in the military, where the military is finally starting to realize that there's savings both in dollars and in lives and getting off this dependence on particularly foreign oil as well as petroleum. As a former uh, Marine, I'd like to ask Pete McCloskey if you have thoughts about how the military can be an agent of change. They were early to, uh, uh, to desegregate, and that before I think some of the civilian society did. Well, there's nothing like being shot at when you're young to make you a pacifist when you're older. And what we've done in places like Vietnam with Agent Orange have left a lot of veterans of Vietnam dedicated to never having that happen again. And if you wanted to help the environmental movement today, you'd cut the number of wars we're making around the world in half, and that would save more money than all other things the Tea Party people are talking about together. But the military has been innovative. Uh, Mr. Hansen, that he, uh, you quoted Jim Hansen, isn't he the head of NASA? 
Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, this is the head of the National Space Agency. Well, when generals start talking... He's talk- a scientist there, yeah. Sure, and when generals start talking about the environmental impacts of war and the emissions of, of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere by tanks and missiles and aircraft and aircraft carriers, now you've got real leaders that can change the environmental movement because the military is perhaps the greatest of all of the violators of the emissions today in the world. You know, another point that Admiral Mullen made, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I'd like to quote from this because this is very important for the military's perspective. He writes, scarcity of water, food, and space, problems that human-made climate change are clearly creating, could create not only a humanitarian crisis, but conditions that could lead to failed states, instability, and potentially radicalization. And his point is that from an international perspective, we need to be careful that if there's problems with droughts in in Africa or or flooding in in Asia, what is that going to lead to and how how should the uh, uh, American military be prepared to address that? Yeah, it's a strategic issue, much far beyond the environment. Uh, Let's have our first audience question, please. Gary Latchoff from Cupertino. Um, question is, do you see this perhaps reaching the Supreme Court? And then if it does, based on the judges there, what might happen? Well, first off, uh, we definitely see that this case will move up through the Supreme Court. What's interesting is there's been a, a, a number of uh, pronouncements coming down from the Supreme Court lately that have been in support of uh, federal common law where a judge finds it necessary to deal with that inequity. Another angle, and this is uh, predominantly through Justice Scalia, one of the members of the Supreme Court, is the whole idea of original intent. Well, as David points out, the public trust doctrine goes back uh, uh, to the Magna Carta, to Justinian. But what it really goes back to is when our colonies were settled, the public trust doctrine was one of the fundamental principles for dealing with navigable waters and natural resources. And I believe we can use that hook to say that that this body of law can be used by the courts with as much force and effect as our Constitution. Phil Gregory is an attorney with Katja Petrie and McCarthy. David Tucker, you want to... Go for the next question. I have thoughts, but... Uh, next question, please. Welcome. Uh, I'm Sidney Williams from Berkeley High. That's it. My question was, um, I heard earlier in the show, you guys had said something about them going to court and showing them more evidence about the environment. And my question was, does the U.S. government really care, and how can we change their minds if we show them everything already? Pete McCloskey, does the government care? You get old enough to be a legend, you don't hear very well. Can he repeat that question? <laughs> uh, can, uh, can we ask you to, can you, uh, excuse me, can you repeat that question? If you're going to run run for office, you got to talk loud. I couldn't hear you. I said, does the U.S. government really care, and how can we change their minds if we show them everything? Like, what else is there to show in the court, basically? Does the government really care, and what can we show them to, to convince them? Well, you knock a few of them out of office in the next election. That was the thing that the kids did back in 1970. They got involved in politics, which is kind of anathema to most young people. What can I do? I can't make a difference, so why get involved? And there's nothing like beating somebody for office uh, to get them thinking. So getting involved in, in uh, voting, you're not quite old enough Even to Even in Berkeley. Even in Berkeley, when you're that old enough to vote. Um, let's have our next audience question, please. Um, I'm Samuel Kerr from Berkeley High. My question is, if the suit passed... Hey, Sam, speak right into the microphone, please. If the Thanks. suit passed, opponents could argue that by making a giant leap from our current energy infrastructure to a green-based one, couldn't it further destabilize the economic recovery? What steps could lead to a successful transition? Is a green transition going to hurt jobs or be, be expensive? 
I'm not an economist. Uh, you read you read dueling answers to that question. Some people say it's the best thing that could happen for the economy. Some things. Some people say no. It actually is going to hurt the economy. Part of the answer is what kind of economy do you want? Do you want a polluting economy? Do you want a non-polluting economy? Uh, it depends on how that transition is made. So it's going to depend upon a lot of different things. One important thing about these suits is. It's not saying what the government has to do other than the government has to reduce greenhouse gases. So presumably, if the government were to take action, the government would be asking economists and asking business leaders and asking environmentalists to sit down and figure out how would you meet these targets so that we don't have economic disruption. One, one specific example is uh, in the 90s, I believe it was, the government put limits on sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide Industry said it would cost about $7 billion to re- reduce those pollutants from the air. The Resources for the Future did a study that turned out it cost only a billion dollars, much less than industry had said it was going to cost. Sometimes the cost of regulation is often often over- overstated. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, um, my name's Mike Warburton. I'm um, executive director of a group called the Public Trust Alliance. Uh, been working for years on this kind of stuff, and I am so happy <laughs> that... An organization with credibility that can hire an advertising agency is doing this. But um, I was wondering why you didn't stress one aspect of the public trust doctrine, which I find it's, it's really novel about public trust law, is that that public trustees don't have a duty to just listen to people. They haven't a affirmative duty to protect the public trust. So, you know, and recently we've been doing public utilities litigation, and, um, you know, we got public compensation because the Public Utilities Commission said that the public trust was so important that but for our intervention, it wouldn't have been represented, and we made a substantial contribution to the the working out of a a situation. So there's another example where this, this doctrine and, has been applied. But so. not only this, but I, I, you know, going back, what's really, really interesting so let's about... Let's wrap up on a quick question if you have one. Is, um, well, Gavin Newsom's dad said, uh, you know, he's a judge, and he said uh, in response to a letter 15 years ago, he said, I share your uh, apprehension at the erosion of the public trust doctrine but so long as our political system continues to degenerate into a mere formula for enriching those already rich enough to enrich themselves, I see little sign for hope. Thank you. And Let's wrap anyway, it up there. youth is. But, but I, can I, I want to Phil Gregory echo a point? Again, think of uh, the public trust doctrine as you have some assets. And you say, I'm going to turn them over to somebody independent. I'm going to turn my assets over to David. And I'm going to ask David to manage, protect those assets. And I go off. And David's now got responsibility for the assets. If he does nothing, if he takes those assets and he squanders them, he uses those assets for his own benefit, and and the and he does not protect them, then he, as a trustee, has not performed his job. What we are saying and what the public trust doctrine clearly says is that the sovereign, our federal government, the state governments, governments in various countries, is responsible for the natural resources as if the government was a trustee holding these assets and not only has a duty to preserve them for me, but has a duty to preserve them for future generations. Let's have our Phil Gregory is an attorney with Katja Petrie and McCarthy. We're discussing uh, carbon litigation, atmospheric litigation, and climate one at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, good morning. My name is Ryan Young. Um, I've started a, a sustainable business consulting firm called Generational Economics. And I'll ask my question and then give a little bit of context. But... Um, I wanted to ask your thoughts on how we can hold companies responsible in addition to governments um, and maybe even in particular individuals at companies um, so that future generations know who is responsible for the what, what they're going to have to deal with. 
And the, the context is, you know, it's not the state governments or federal governments who's actually putting the emissions into the air. It's actually the companies who are doing that. Um, so, you know, with the, with, with the approval of the state governments and federal government, but how can we hold companies uh, accountable and responsible in addition to, uh, to governments? Bill Gregory? Sure, I'd like to states? first take issue with one thing. Our federal government is one of the largest, if not the largest, polluter out there. I mean, you look at the cars our government owns. You look about uh, the uh, what our government energy usage is. It's tremendous. So if the if the federal government could just manage its own household properly, it would it would be an incredible benefit to uh, 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 what's going on. But for the public purposes of the public trust doctrine, and I'll let David address this. Our cases focused on the governments. There's other litigation focused on corporations. So two, two responses to that. First of all, the nuisance lawsuits that, uh, that Phil was discussing are directly aimed at uh, major energy polluters, and that's, another, that's for another panel. But the public trust structure, if, uh, if these lawsuits were, or petitions were to succeed, it is not just that the government has to reduce its own emissions. It's that the government has to come up with a plan of how they would reduce and how they would oversee reduction of emissions 6% per year. Just as in our AB 32 Global Warming Solutions Act in California, that would presumably be passed to energy companies, to manufacturers as part of the plan. They have required emissions reductions that they would have to make if this were to succeed. So there, there's, much of the reductions would be passed on to the private companies that you're talking about. Let's have our next audience question. Hey, uh, my name is Eric Anderson. I'm from the Green Academy at Berkeley High. Um, I was, I mean, this global warming issue, it's not just a national issue, it's a world issue. So I was wondering what your guys' plan was for dealing with other countries, for example, like China. Um, and if you, yeah, just wanted to hear more about we, that. We have um, uh, attorneys and uh, individuals in other countries who are attempting to uh, uh, bring actions under the public trust doctrine. It's an excellent question because what we're often met with is, well, so I uh, do something here. I'm just a drop in the overall bucket. Uh, uh, that China's the next big polluter and nobody's going to do anything about China. But China has recognized this problem. China is taking steps. And we are meeting with representatives of, uh, uh, of these various governments to try to get them to also recognize the public trust principles as they apply to our government. Uh, the public trust doctrine is incredibly powerful in several developing countries, for example, uh, like India, Pakistan, uh, Philippines, South Africa, where this, this, the kind of litigation that Phil is talking about is actually coming down the pike there. In some cases, it's being planned right now for these other, these other countries. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Let's have the next audience question. Hey, um, I'm Charles Harris from uh, Berkeley High Green Academy. Uh, and my question was, uh, how would you limit air pollution to big coal-burning businesses, and what would this look like? Coal is a big part of the emitters. I mean, are you trying to get governments to crack down on coal? Is that part of the right. uh, approach here? Well, and again, what we're trying to do is get the government to come up with the overall plan. And the government needs to recognize that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not just, uh, what I'm going to call it, uh, one or two... Uh, problems, but it's an overarching problem where the government needs to recognize that coal and and uh, trust me, uh, Jim Hansen is uh, who's who's uh, very behind our cases is 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 very big on dealing with coal. But coal is such a huge problem that our government needs to have a plan to address it, and is in fact not addressing it as a problem, but it but. Our government appears to be viewing it as the solution. Let's have a next audience question. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dagny Dingman, a teacher in the Green Academy at Berkeley High. And um, I'm wondering if, if the president has to do with water for a public trust. Are you worried that there are any characteristics about the atmosphere that people will argue that the atmosphere is somehow fundamentally different than water? And how are you anticipating those arguments? Yeah, part of... Part of the difference between resources, 
Resources like water, wildlife, land, you can picture ways over the years that private private sources can take those things, can manipulate those things, can despoil those things, can destroy those things. The idea that the atmosphere we think of the air as just the air. It's not like it's not like the ground. It's not like water. It's not like wildlife. So part of the problem here, and part of why the atmosphere has never been considered a public trust resource, is because we've never had to think about climate change or the atmosphere as being a renewable resource. So you're absolutely right that that's part of the problem is that this is a novel use for the public trust doctrine. Nonetheless, if you look at what the public trust doctrine actually says. The atmosphere is no different than those other resources in terms of how fundamental it is to human life for, pub- for present and future generations. So hypothetically, the public trust doctrine should be applicable to the air or to the atmosphere, but it's not clear that it yet has been. That's correct. And in fact, if you, uh, the way the public trust doctrine started in uh, many of the early cases was what, what are called navigable waterways, the seashore, the lakes. And what, what the state was trying to do is, in essence, sell uh, uh, out to private interests uh, the ability to put wharves and things along those lines so that, so that private corporations controlled these waterways. It was easy for the courts to see, as, as David points out, that you've got someone who is doing a use there on a natural resource, and it's, it's inhibiting or creating problems for the overall public. With the air, it's natural now to see that problems are being created because of private interests. The government has, through whatever, its permitting process, whatever, allowed these things to happen. And the courts need to step in and say to agencies, you can't do that. You can't let our atmosphere get any worse than it is now. And this is just like what they did with wharves or a, a, a seashore off uh, in Illinois. They did it to a railroad. I mean, it's exactly what has occurred in the past. There's a real interesting body of work around the psychology and perception of climate change and how we as humans are not particularly well wired to deal with things we can't see, smell, taste, or touch. And we never confronted a threat that quite quite like this. Let's have the next audience question, please. Can you make a picture of an ozone layer? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's a good point, Pete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something we can. You know. Yeah, let's let's get a picture of an ozone layer and use that as the what race judicata or race something <laughs> communist. Let's have our next audience question, please. Um, I'm Samuel Kerr from Berkeley High. Um, I may be incorrect, but. In the 80s, the Reagan administration was able to overturn several environmental laws. If the suit passed, is there a danger of the law being overturned by future justices? What if you win? But that could be nothing's forever, right, Phil Gregory? Well, that's it's true, but the by recognizing the public trust doctrine, that we don't believe that future courts will be able to say, no, there is no such thing as a public trust doctrine. What they will be able to do is say, the method you went, you, you employ, you, the judge, went about doing this is wrong. We would have employed a different method. But once the doctrine is uh, 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 put in play, then we believe future litigation will be able to uh, 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 make sure that the courts keep control over this situation. Next audience question, please. Good morning. My name is Kelly Bitov, and I'm a law student at Northeastern in Boston, part of this underground research network you were talking about. I'm really curious about how particular plaintiffs were located, and if you could talk a little bit about, for the high school students, what their experience is going to be like as plaintiffs, as this is going to be a multi-year process. That's very important. Uh, uh, through Alec Lors and Kids versus Global Warming and the I Matter marches, uh, um, kids started hearing about this litigation and they wanted to become plaintiffs. So uh, they asked generally what's going to be involved. Well, the first thing that's involved is for the particular plaintiff to identify how he or she has been harmed and will continue to be harmed unless the public trust principles apply then he or she will be involved because he or she will, uh, uh, each plaintiff really wants to understand 
the scope of the litigation, understand the scope of the science and the like, and we're keeping them educated. Then later, the plaintiffs will be involved in hopefully having their depositions taken and be active participants in the case so that when the judge takes the bench, he or she is going to see a group of youth out in the courtroom saying, you have to do something now. Help us save our environment. And that's the role youth will have in this case. We're at the time here. We're end here. Any last uh, words from David Takish or Pete McCloskey? I can't add anything to that. David Takish? Okay, we'll end it there. Thank you all for coming. Our thanks to <laughs> Phil Gregory, Principal Attorney at Katja Petrie and McCarthy, Pete McCloskey, former congressman and co-author of the Endangered Species Act, and David Takish, Associate Professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.